This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As always, we welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you're a first-time listener, you'll be interested to know for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions on the Bible, personal issues maybe that you want biblical counsel with, um, ministry issues, uh, a passage you're struggling with. If we can help, well, by God's grace, we will. All we need to do is hear from you. The number locally is 525-1859. We have internet listeners who some listen as we broadcast, because we broadcast through the internet 24-7 around the world. Some listen uh, to the answer later on, and when you send in a question, we will usually email you back to say, oh, your question was finally answered. Sometimes it's answered the day we receive it. Live callers, of course, always get preference. But um, people email us here at, into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. The toll-free number is 877-WAGP. The call letter is 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it either way. Rick, as always, it's great to be here on the Bible line, and... Um, Let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right. Indeed, Pastor, we've got a number of questions that have come in. One from Naples, Italy. Okay. Hammy writes, this week my cousin asked me what happens when we die. Can you please help me respond to him with Scripture? Uh, his question, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, do we instantly go to be with the Lord? Thanks so much for your help. Well, it's a great question, and it's one that God's people have always had. And so in a number of places in the Word of God, it's addressed. But we will come back to that because we always give live callers preference. So we're going to begin with our first live caller this morning. Welcome to the Bible Line. Good morning, Pastor and Rick. How are you? Doing fine. Thank you. Good. In in my morning Bible studies, um, I'm now reading about David, which is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it struck me at... David, Solomon, uh, and so many others in the Bible went against God's wishes and had many, many wives. And I know Solomon paid for that dearly. But were there were there others that had that suffered consequences for going against God's word and and having multiple wives? Yes. Whenever we miss God's best, either through insensitivity or direct disobedience, we always suffer the consequences. It's a law of God that whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. And our sin ultimately finds us out. Even King David, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he went and um, delayed the confession and repentance of his sin until Nathan the prophet, almost a year later, comes. The baby's already born. So you know it was at least the minimum of nine months that had transpired. And 
Of course, Nathan tells him a little parable of sorts about a man who has a precious lamb that he treated as his own daughter and a rich man wanted it and took it and harvested it and ate it and gave it to his friends. And David, as a shepherd himself, was just enraged. And he said, the person needs to pay fourfold. Well, David spoke the justice that came upon him because of his sin. He paid in a fourfold way. Um, yes, uh, God's ideal from the beginning was one man, one woman until death separates them. Uh, sometimes people run ahead of God, even Abraham, the friend of God, the father of the faithful, uh, took a second wife, uh, through the counsel of his wife, Sarah, thinking that this would be the means in which God would provide this child since she could not have a baby. Uh, but again, it cost him, uh, Ishmael, uh, I think Ishmael's in heaven, but his descendants, well, many of them were rebellious and, uh, had no heart for the things of God. And to this day, uh, there's a conflict between the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, we typically refer to them as the Arab nations and the descendants of Isaac. Uh, they're, they've butt head for butt heads for centuries, so, you know, Solomon was warned that if he took multiple wives, that his heart could be drawn away from the Lord. And indeed it was. And God said to him that because, and, and I'm sure that every wife he married, you know, he, he had a 700 wives and a thousand concubines that he didn't necessarily have a relationship with them. Many times people married someone else for purely political reasons. Well, if I marry her, then her daddy, who's a king, can't get mad at me and can't attack me. And so there was all kinds of political alliances that went on as well, not just purely physical marriages, but there was both in Solomon's life. And his heart was drawn away to idolatry. And God said for that reason, he was going to destroy his kingdom. Uh, But he said, just because of David, who had ultimately a repentant heart. And so God can refer to him as a man after God's own heart. Um, Because of the sake of your father, David, I won't do it in your life, but, but your son will see it. And so Rehoboam, his son comes to the throne and he needs counsel and he listens to some of the older men in the kingdom. But he also listens to some of the younger men that give counsel. That's really contrary to basic wisdom and so he follows the counsel in his greed of the younger man, and the kingdom is split in two. And so then you have 10 northern tribes that are called Israel or Ephraim sometimes, and the two southern tribes that are called Judah after the larger of the two between Judah and Benjamin. So there's always consequences. Now, I will say this, that under the old covenant, there are some things that God allowed that he would not put up with for a second today. There were still consequences. And there were people, by the way, who never did some of these other things. Moses didn't have multiple wives. Joseph didn't have multiple wives. Uh, But nonetheless, God said when he would send the spirit, a promise that none of the old covenant saints ever knew. And that's why Jesus could say of John the Baptist, there was never anyone ever born of a woman greater than John, but he was least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John died as an Old Testament saint. He died ever before Pentecost took place. And so he never experienced the full blessing of the new covenant that we celebrate every time 
at the Lord's Supper. Because of the enactment of Christ's blood, we can have a relationship with the Spirit of God that even though some select individuals had a limited relationship, even John and even men like David, they did not have the kind of relationship that we today enjoy as believers. And so God spoke, speaks to the fact, for instance, through Ezekiel the prophet in the 36th chapter, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes, and you will be careful to observe, observe my ordinances. Uh, so that's a promise that God was making to the old covenant believers. They never saw it. And in the fullest sense, only a limited number of Jewish people have seen it. But Ezekiel will go on in the next chapter in what's called the vision or the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. And it looks down the Carters of time to what the parallel prophet Jeremiah refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the Great Tribulation. And during that seven-year period, the Jewish people are going to come and believe and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And those dry bones will have flesh put on them. That heart of stone will be softened into a heart of flesh. Under the new covenant, if a man was a polygamist, he wouldn't even be considered a believer. But under the old covenant, it was possible because of the hardness of man's heart. So God, in his long suffering and patience, was looking to a, a future time when things would be different. And even it's, it's different even in one sense for unbelievers because of the light of the church because of the salt that we are and the light that we dispel. Uh, the church has called an unbelieving world to a higher standard with a constant reminder of Christ's presence through his body in the world today. So many implications, many changes. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Rick, I think we had a dictated question that we were on. Indeed. Uh, Tammy from Naples had that question. Uh, let me go back to that real quick. Uh, by yeah. the way, 525-1859, toll free. If you have a question on today's Bible line, or as Tammy did, you can email it to tbl at wagp.net. She writes, my cousin asked, what happens when when we die? He had the scripture verse, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and asks, so when we die, do we instantly go to be with the Lord? Well, yes, and and that verse really sums it up and succinctly. To be absent from the body is indeed to be present with the Lord. That's God's promise. So when the Bible describes sleep, it's never in reference to the soul. In the New Testament, it's in reference to the body. When Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, um, or some of your newer translations will say those who are dead, though the Greek text does say asleep, and I think that's helpful because it's describing the temporary state of the body. Just like last night, you lay down in a bed and you got up this morning. Our bodies are to be laid down in a grave. God's design is not cremation, it's burial. That's the pattern that God gave us. And that's what Christians historically have always done. Many today in ignorance will cremate their loved ones, but that's not God's design. That's the world's design. Uh, But he says, we'll not have you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. Because he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and every true Christian does, that's the gospel. That's the power of God for salvation. Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance, the gospel that Christ died, was buried and was raised. And he calls that God's plan, God's power to save us in Romans 1, 16 and 17. 
if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean? Well, because to be absent from the body, as 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, is to be present with the Lord. So at the moment of physical death, the person inside your human body that is laid down in a grave somewhere, or it is cremated in some instances, but that will not be a problem for God. He will raise it up either way. Um, In either case, the person inside that human space suit that you related to them for, for all those years, went home to be with Jesus. So God will bring with him those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Uh, Because this is what Jesus said. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's not only... Uh, takes our spirit, our soul, home to be with him in heaven. But someday he gives a promise of the body being raised as well. There are many other passages that affirm the same teaching. For instance, when Paul wrote the church at Philippi in chapter 1, he makes this statement in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this would mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul said, you know, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I know if God allows me to live on in the flesh that is in this physical body, it's going to mean fruitful labor. It's going to mean opportunity Uh, for ministry, for me to care for his churches like you Philippians. Uh, But on the other hand, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ because at the moment of death, you go home to be with the Lord. And that's why he can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says for me to live, it's, it's all about Jesus and fellowship with him. To die would be a loss if our body, soul, and spirit, as Seventh-day Adventists and some others have taught, uh, sleep in the grave. But that's not what happens. The person inside goes home to be with the Lord. It appears we receive some kind of temporary intermediate body. And so we see Moses and Elijah very much alive on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Uh, And they're recognizable to Peter, James, and John, who's on that Mount with the Lord. Uh, But that's not their ultimate resurrection body. Just like um, when a Christian dies today, he appears to be in some intermediate body, but he's awaiting the final resurrection of the body. So that's the promise of Holy Scripture. If you want a more extended answer, this person from Naples, you might be interested to know that all the sermons uh, are now put at searchthescriptures.org. There's even phone apps if you have smartphones. And if you go to the Philippians series, click on the message that deals with Philippians 121. And I spend about 30 minutes not, I just have quoted two passages to you, but there's like dozens of passages that teach absent from the body, present with the Lord, and will just deepen and firm your conviction. You only need one verse of scripture to prove something doctrinally. But many times God gives us many more passages of scripture, and this is certainly the case with the issue that you raised. So go there, download the sermon into your computer or smartphone, listen to the whole sermon with your husband. I think you'll find it to be a great encouragement. 
525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener attends a church where the pastor and his wife both preach and are involved in church issues. This caller says it's very common in some of the African-American churches, and she's wondering if it is scriptural to have a man and woman share the pulpit. If it is not, how should she, as a Christian, encourage her church to understand that it is not scriptural? And also, is this a salvation issue? Well, it's certainly not a salvation issue. It doesn't necessarily have to be. It could be for the individual who's serving in this capacity if they come face-to-face with the clear teaching of Scripture and they have no heart, no desire, no will to obey it. It may be a salvation issue in the sense that uh, by their unwillingness to submit to the clear authority of God, they may be giving a fruit or evidence that they've never genuinely been converted because the overall disposition of someone who's born again is they have a willingness and a love to obey God because he first loved us in Christ. But can a church, you know, have some unbiblical practices either out of ignorance or sometimes because they have been convinced that, you know, this is a culturally mandated uh, admonition that say women shouldn't be pastors Uh, And again, there are some things that are culturally mandated uh, that have a cultural expression in the first century, though with a timeless application or principle that's usually behind it. For instance, take head coverings. In the United States, head coverings is not an issue in our culture. There are other cultures of the world where you can look out across uh, a city street Like if you're in Eastern Europe, this is beginning to change. But when I first started going to Eastern Europe in the 19, mid 1990s, you know, I could walk down the street and I could tell you which women were married and which ones were single. All the single women had no head covering. All the married women had a head covering. Didn't matter if you were Christian or non-Christian. That was just the culture. And it still largely is amongst the older generation, though the younger generation has kind of rejected that, except some in the churches, they still follow it. But wearing a head covering, uh, a scarf or whatever it might be over your head was basically saying, I'm married and I am under the authority of my husband. And so when Paul speaks about head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, it's still applicable in many countries and cultures of the world. Uh, though it may not be directly applicable to the United States. But the principle is that God is appointed a head, just as the Father is the head of Christ. They're equal, but the Father is the head of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 says. And so Paul says Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. Um, that is a timeless principle. When you come to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So he gives a very direct command here that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he gives two reasons why. One, the order of creation. So he makes it very clear this is not some culturally mandated thing. Um, 
And what I find very interesting is usually the only people who try to say, well, this was just some cultural expression that has no application for today are Christians, unbelievers. When they approach the scriptures, they say, well, this is what Paul said. Um, And then you have a whole certain group who say, well, this is what Paul said, but Paul was just wrong. Um, He was, you know, he had a, a thing against women, just like he had a thing against homosexuals. So you'll, you'll get varying opinions, but interestingly, it's just typically the Christians who are trying to justify women leadership in terms of being pastors in the local assembly. Now, historically, usually the only people who did this were Pentecostals, but now it's become widespread in evangelical churches. And it is often true in African-American churches where you have sometimes women who are the senior pastors or the co-pastor with her husband. But that's in violation of Scripture. Um, He says a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And just so we know it's not culturally mandated, he, he goes back to the order of creation because it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Um, God made Eve for Adam, not Adam for Eve. She was his helpmate. She was his completer. He was the head. He was the leader. And it was not Adam, he says, who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. What happened? When Eve stepped out of her God-given role and took the leadership that she was not supposed to take, she was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. His sin was worse. He sinned with his eyes wide open. But she fell into deception when she left the role that God had given. And then he takes it even further that women are sanctified through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and with self-respect. In other words, it's not just a prohibition of what a woman can't do. There's an admonition of what a woman ought to be doing, that she has a high and holy role in the bearing and nurturing and the care of children. And then, of course, remember the chapter and verse divisions are totally artificial. They're added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. He then goes on and he describes the qualifications for someone who would aspire to the office of overseer or elder or or bishop or pastor, depending on your translation. And, And the words are used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office. And he gives the qualifications, many of which which are, are male qualifications, that um, she, he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and so on and so forth. So women are not to be pastors. Um, they can't be pastors and do their job well of raising children. But again, we live in a culture when women are being taught more and more to totally forsake the role of raising children, that that's an insignificant role, that if you really want to have some self-worth in this life, then go ahead and get a, get a job, pursue a career, be in the boardroom with the men, and let someone else raise the children, and you can give them your leftover time. Well, if you want to do that, you can, but that's not God's design. And whenever we break God's laws, we're broken by them. We're the losers, And so if you want the kind of marriages that the world is now offering by adopting their principles, you'll get it. You'll get rebellious kids very often. You will get uh, unhealthy marriages. You know, and a woman, because God has created her differently from a man, he's created a man with a work ethic to um, earn his living by the sweat of his brow to be the provider and protector for his family. 
where he's made a, a woman to be a different kind of worker, a worker at home, Paul says, an oikos ergos, a home worker, literally. Um, I don't like the term housewife. Um, God calls women to be home workers. And older women are to teach them how to do that effectively. And so if God's created her with this nurturing aspect, and she goes out and works hard all day, and then she comes home, she's still going to do a lot of the same things that she normally does. She's going to want to care for the house and make sure the laundry's done the way she likes it, and the meals are prepared the way she wants it, and so on. And, and um, what begins to happen is a marriage begins to function out of exhaustion, The kids don't get the attention and they become more, quote unquote, work because they lack discipline and nurturing and love and and walls begin to build up between the couple. And before you know it, you know, they can't stand each other. And she goes to work and there's some guy that she doesn't live with who is kind and sensitive, much like he was when they were single. Before you know it, there's infatuation, there's an affair, the marriage breaks down and on and on the cycle goes. So we can think we're smarter than God and we're not. God in his wisdom gave some distinct roles, but we want to blur those roles. And you see that more and more in evangelical theology. You see it in uh, different denominations like cooperative Baptists. You see it in a lot of the mega non-denominational churches and where um, like Bill Hybels church where he's got egalitarianism written all over it. Um, where men and women are equal, but they have the same roles. Well, God says they're equal, but they have different roles, complementarian view. Anyway, we could spend a lot of time on that, but you might want to listen to the messages that I did out of 1 Timothy 2. And you can go online to searchthescriptures.org. And I suggest that you begin with the message that will probably start around verse 8. And I think I did three messages. And I, and, I, and I, by the way, go through all the passages that people use, why women should be preachers. What about Deborah, you know? And what about Moses' sister? Wasn't she a preacher? And we go through all of those passages, and we look at them very carefully in their historical biblical context. And we'll, you'll see how they're being abused today and misused. And listen, you know, you can get somebody who can justify their position. God warns, let not many of you become teachers, knowing you'll incur a stricter judgment. And there's some people standing behind pulpits because they like to be liked and they don't want to be against the culture. And to be, to take the position I've just shared is very countercultural and, you know, a lot of people don't accept it. But, you know, if you want to be loved by the world, okay. But remember, you'll give an account someday. Let's go to our next caller. They've been waiting patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Thank you, Pastor, for taking my call. You're welcome. How can I help, brother? Uh, I was looking through uh, Revelation 12, and um, it's the scene about uh, Michael. I'm trying to go off memory now. Michael and his angels fought against the uh, the dragon and his angels. Yes, and I was I was wondering about the timing of, of that, Pastor. Is that the same event as we understand of how the serpent ended up in the garden to tempt Eve, or is this a whole different scenario? It's a great question, um, and a great sign appeared in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor in pain to give birth. And I preached a sermon on this in our series in eschatology, the doctrine of end times. And we look at the woman who's really a picture of Israel. The great thing about Revelation is there are a lot of symbols that are used, but most of the symbols in scripture 
are defined within Scripture itself, either within the Revelation or in other books of the Bible. That's why you will often hear people say the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the women who was about to give birth so that she gave birth that, uh, that he might devour her child. So there is a career that Satan has had, which is really interesting. And a little bit later you referenced, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon, of course, is Satan in as defined in the revelation and the dragon his in his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven and a great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old who is called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and i heard a voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ has come so the amount of angels that fell are given here in the Revelation a third. And these third that initially rebelled with Satan, because we know from the Old Testament, and I have a course on angelology, that when angels rebelled, the testing period was over, that there was a fixed number. Angels aren't still rebelling. Uh, holy angels or elect angels still give an account for their service, just like once I am saved, I'm sealed forever in Christ, I can't lose my salvation. But I will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to see if I'm going to heaven, but to see how I will be rewarded throughout eternity. I will give an account. Um, Well, when the angels fell, they were sealed in their position, either as fallen angels, what we call demons, or holy angels, or elect angels, they're called in Scripture. And holy and elect angels someday will give an account for their service. In fact, Paul says, we will judge angels, meaning the church, the body of Christ. God's going to somehow allow us to have a role in the evaluation and the service that angels played. Because they come, and Hebrews 1, 14 says, they render service or ministry to those who inherit salvation. That's us. So it's interesting that angels who serve us in an invisible way, for the most part, though it is possible for them to have a visible expression and us not to know it. And so God says, show hospitality even to strangers, because sometimes you're entertaining an angel and you don't, you're unaware of it. Uh, but most of their service is invisible and um, to us. And so it's interesting that God will allow us to, uh, to be involved in their evaluation. But my, my bigger point is, is that their destiny is sealed. So the number of all the angels, however many there are, and, and God uses t- terms like myriads and mil- myriads, 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, it's an, it's an expression to say just like maybe billions of angels. But out of all the angels that fell, there was a third. And so the number is actually given us here in the Revelation because we know it's a sealed number. But what we do find out in the Revelation is that during the time of the Great Tribulation, there is a physical presence of the demonic world literally on the earth as a result of a war that is taking place in the heavenly realms. There is a war that goes on every day. Uh, 
Paul uh, says we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is the war between angels and us. But Daniel chapter 10 describes the war between angels and angels that is going on in the heavenly realm. And so as you read through uh, Daniel's account, you know, like Gabriel said, well, I wanted to come, but, you know, I got into this conflict with another prince and this fallen angel. And so there's a, there's conflict that goes on now, but this is going to be more than a battle. This is going to be a full-fledged war that is taking place in the heavenly realm. I think Satan realizes his time is limited at this point. And so he instigates a battle in the angelic realm like is never happened in, in recorded angelic history. And as a result of that, they're thrown down to the earth. And earth is not a pleasant place during this time. Uh, demons and their expressions of torment and everything else that are explained in the Revelation is just absolutely horrible. But um, does that help? Does that begin to answer your question? Oh, absolutely, Pastor. That, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Well, great. What you might want to do is, if you want to follow through further, is if you go to searchthescriptures.org on either your computer or you can download it as an app, uh, one of the series we did is called Eschatology. Eschatos, for some of our listeners, maybe are new to the Bible, is the Greek word for last things. So when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking about the study of last things or end times, so to speak. And I did like 50, I think, six sermons on 56 w- different Wednesday nights, not in a row. There was a few Wednesday nights we had off or, a, you know, a deacon ordination or one thing or another. But we went through the whole broad teaching and I did teach uh, Revelation 5 through 21 as part of the series. And so if you find that series, find Revelation 12. And I spent a lot more time, but I hit at least some of the highlights there. That's a great question, though. Let's go to the next one. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener, Gail, in Waterbury, Connecticut, asks, uh, or states, you discussed in your series on spiritual gifts an event in Boston where the Moonies attempted to take over a church. Please describe congregationalism and why it is the wrong form of church polity and what you feel is biblical. Well, I think that's Gil. Yeah, Gil from Waterbury. Oh, sorry. Uh, didn't want to feminize him too much there with a Gail, but it's a good question, Gil. So let me see if I can uh, respond to it. Um, I, I suppose in some respect there are degrees of congregationalism, and the, the reference I was making was uh, in our course, I was teaching on spiritual gifts, which is also available online at searchthescriptures.org. And I was going through, if I remember correctly, I, I taught it many years ago, the various gifts and how they can express themselves. And one of the gifts was the gift of discernment. And there was a, a lady in our church, the gift of discerning spirits, literally, um, Evie Thurby, I remember Evie well, and, um, and she uh, was in women's ministry on that church, uh, Ruggles Street Baptist Church, and she had a question about some people who were joining the church, and she said, I can't put my finger on it. I know they come with all the right words, and they say they're born again, and they're this and that, and um, you know, and they're serving, but I, I just feel kind of funny about some of these people. I think we need to watch them, and and some of the people on the staff appreciated the fact that they recognized that she had 
you know, the gift of discerning spirits. It's one of the gifts that are listed in the New Testament. Uh, we're all to show discernment. Interestingly, with every non-sign gift in the New Testament, there is an accompanying responsibility. And all Christians are called to be discerning. And your ability to discern is based on two things. One, walking with God, as Hebrews 5 says, having uh, through obedience trained your senses to discern good and evil. And so in the broadest sense, we're all to discern the spirits, to test them, to see if they be of God. But anyway, Evie was right on the money, as it turns out, because what was happening in this Baptist church, which had a pure form of congregationalism, is there was a hostile takeover that was beginning to unfold. And so at the time, the Moonies were very big in Boston. And so they were coming in under false pretense, saying that they were born-again Christians and joining this church. And they realized, since it was a congregational church, that if they had enough people, they could outvote the old membership. And by outvoting the old membership, they could take over the the building and its properties. So that's like one dangerous dimension to congregationalism. Um, I know in the day that we live in, uh, people say, well, all the churches I went to, you know, we voted on everything and... um, you know, I think it's my right as a member to say how the church should run and how it should function, and that, that's just my right, you know, not just as a Christian, but as an American. Well, not really. Uh, it may be an American thing to do, but it's not really a very biblical thing to do. God says, for instance, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. That doesn't sound very American because they keep watch over your soul. So there is a dimension of submission to ecclesiastical authority in the local assembly. And that should happen, I think, through elders. Now, some churches, their polity is defined a little bit differently, where there's a single elder, and then there's a group of deacons that in many ways function like elders. And then in some churches, which I think is more biblical, is you have a plurality of elders who then are served by deacons alongside but, you know, the Bible talks about elders, for instance, in First Timothy 5.17, who rule well. There's a ruling dimension to the office of, of elder. And so um, that is protective. You know, a lot of churches that have started have started, you know, through a split. Uh, a group of people couldn't get along with another group of people. And if you follow the Genesis, the start of that conflict, very often it goes down to a business meeting where you have a business meeting in the church where typically you have four or five different groups of people. In every church, there's some non-Christians who know all the right words, but they're lost. Jesus told us that. The wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the harvest. Uh, They are typically very divisive people. That's one of the marks, Jude says, of an unsaved man is he's worldly-minded divisive without the spirit. Um, But if a man comes into your church or a woman and he says they're born again and he knows all the right words of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, well, you can know the plan of salvation without knowing the man of salvation. Um, You can potentially be a divisive person. So you have some unsaved people, you give them a vote. You have some brand new baby Christians. They don't know any better. They're babies. You know, babies do silly things sometimes. Then you have carnal Christians who are out of fellowship with God, who have met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but 
they've become somewhat compromised, maybe in small areas of their life, uh, things that don't warrant, say, church discipline, but nonetheless, issues that will short-circuit the power of the Holy Spirit from leading them, and then you have mature Christians. So when you have all four groups of those people and you give them all an equal vote and an opportunity to speak, you have a formula for disaster. And that's how a lot of churches started. In a business meeting, they couldn't get along. A fight started, and they ended up picking up at some point and leaving. And they went and they started their own church. And so that's not how it is to function. You are to have godly men who lead the church. Uh, Now, Again, there are degrees of congregationalism many times in, in virtually every even elder-led church. Maybe the elders, for instance, as they are at Community Bible Church, they're accountable to the congregation once a year, where the congregation votes on them, as they will this Sunday at CBC. Not as a whole, but each one. And I often tell our people, listen, if he's a man of God, affirm him. If he's not, then fire him. But they don't choose him. They don't, they don't say, well we'll, well, we'll choose another elder. They may have to affirm another elder, but they don't choose them. Uh, and that's what happens in a lot of churches. Deacons are just chosen by the congregation, and they'll pass out a list, say, of all the men, or if they have men and women serving as deacons, and you put a check mark next to anyone who's 18 whom you want to be a deacon. Whoever gets the most check marks gets the office. It's not a popularity contest. There was some some things that must be true. There are 21 qualifications that must be met for a person to serve in the office of elder or pastor. So it's not a popularity contest. And that's the problem is that many times people serve in the office who are not qualified to serve in the office. And that's why the church really is not blessed and God's hand is not over that. And so a church will stand or fall on its leadership. But to answer your question in more depth, what I would do is I would encourage you to go to searchthescriptures.org, and there is online a course that I taught called Ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, and it means um, called out ones or set apart ones. The, churches are the, the church is the called out ones. Sometimes it's used of... Um, most of the time of the body of Christ. Sometimes it's used um, just of a group of people who've gotten together, maybe even for an evil cause. It's used one way like that in Acts of a mob of people who are against the Apostle Paul. But generally it's used to, to refer to the body of Christ who've been called out by God, set apart by the Lord. And so the doctrine of ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. And so you might want to go and listen to the course on ecclesiology. And one of the sessions deals with different types of church governments, um, where everything from popery, where you have a supreme leader, to um, uh, pure congregationalism. In pure congregationalism, people vote on absolutely everything. I was in a church one time where we voted on the color of the hymnals, and there was a fight over it, too. Um, it can be really silly. But listen, if a church is going to grow and function at some point, they have to entrust some responsibility to the leaders. I mean, do we have to uh, get approval from the church if we have to buy paper clips? Well, hopefully not, you know. So my point is, is even in the most congregational type minded churches, they give some authority for people to be able to make some decisions. If you don't, you really can't function. You can't move forward. So the question becomes, how much authority do the leaders have? And so um, 
it, it's unfortunate that a lot of churches, in my judgment, are not sound in their church polity, and it only creates problems, and it stagnates growth, and that's why they're paralyzed, and they never really change, and are never able to impact uh, their community for Christ. They're known more by their animosity in the fellowship than they are by the love of Christ. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as has uh, Joe from Portland, Maine. You can email us at tbl at net. He asks, what scriptures are in the Bible that deal with church membership and our elections for church positions, trustees, elders, auditors, etc., biblical? What's well, a good question. Let me deal first with a membership issue. Um, there's a number of passages when you put them together, I believe they assume church membership. It's kind of like the doctrine of the Trinity. There's not a single verse in scripture whereby you can get a full-blown um, understanding on the oneness and the threeness of God that God is one God who exists in three co-eternal, co-equal persons. But when you put a number of passages together, then you are able to develop clearly what God has revealed concerning Trinitarian theology, much the same, the same is true with the word um, membership. The word membership, of course, is not found in the Bible, much like the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the doctrine of a New Testament membership, I think, is taught. Um, number one, and let me just say, some churches open it up where anybody can join the church. And that's obviously not very biblical. God requires a regenerate membership, people who are born again. And so, for instance, in Acts 2 and verse 47, they were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so to be a part of a New Testament church the membership must be converted. They must be regenerate. Um, Even passages like 2 Corinthians 6 assumes that. Paul pointedly says that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. And what greater binding relationship is there, maybe apart from marriage, than the relationship that we have in the other institution that God uh, employed, and that is the church. Um, Usually, historically evangelical or what we might call Bible believing churches have had two requirements for membership. One is conversion and the other is baptism or your confession of faith. Because again, if a person inwardly knows Christ as savior and Lord, uh, Jesus taught they would be outwardly willing to confess him before men. Everyone, therefore, I'm reading, uh, I've turned to Matthew 10, 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So there's an assumption in the New Testament that there is a confession of faith. And how did that take place in the early church? Well, by baptism. And so in the Great Commission, Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples or converts He doesn't say go and do disciple making. That's not what the verse is saying. Go and make converts of all the nations. Earlier, he gave what we call the limited commission, 
where he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, just go to the house of Israel. But about 250 years ago, we coined the term Great Commission. Jesus brought in the commission. He said, now I want you to go to the ethne, to all the nations, to the goyim in Hebrew, to the ethne in Greek, to the nations in English, meaning all the different people groups. He's not just talking about, well, you need to go to South Africa and Germany and France. Now, there may be people groups within that. He's talking about all the different ethnic groups. In fact, as it reads, it literally says, as you go everywhere you go, make disciples, make converts. In other words, we take this verse and we dump it on the missionary and we say, you know, go to Egypt and win the Egyptians with the gospel. But literally, it's as you go. And so in the community that you live in, you should say, who are the ethne? What are the people groups that are represented here? We live in Beaufort County. It's 38% African-American, for instance. So that would be one people group that I would be committed to reach. And if I was an African-American pastor, I'd say, oh, well, my, you know, my community is um, 62% um, Maybe white, but it's not actually because there's a fair number of Hispanics and there's Japanese people and there's Korean people and there's German people. And there's actually quite a number of different people groups that are represented uh, here in our own county. And we are to reach those people however we can reach them with the gospel of God's son. So two requirements typically for church membership, conversion and baptism. Typically, if a church requires a lot more than that, and they say, well, you have to go through this membership class for 20 weeks, and then you have to sign this covenant, and, you know, you have to agree to tithe, say, to become a member, or you have to, you know, agree to come three out of four uh, Sundays out of the week, and, um, you know, every Sunday night, and at least once a month on Wednesday night. Usually, uh, a church that adds to those two requirements is a church that's not evangelistic. They're not growing by conversion. Um, because very often they ask you to maybe even embrace, I'm thinking of one church, they ask you to embrace five points of reformed theology in order to become a member. And I think about people that maybe came to Christ last week who they don't even know what the word reformed theology means and they have no idea what the five points are. And some of them are highly questionable and debatable amongst God's people. But very often, if a church is not evangelistic and they're not growing by conversion, then they create this list of things. Now, I do believe there is a commitment that is expressed, as I'll explain in just a moment, inherently within membership. And so if a person, you know, says, well, I go to Community Bible Church and, you know, and our deacons reach out to them after they join, they minister to them and they're active, then they, they continue in our membership. But if at some point they, well, they don't come anymore, they show up once a year, we drop them. Well, we don't keep some eternal list of people, you know, helping, help, you know, maybe that makes some pastors feel good. Uh, you know, I had one guy got his resume and he said, well, I'm a, a church with 3,000 members. I said, wonderful. How many people come on Sunday morning? He said, 275. Well, you know, goodness, you you have 275 or maybe probably more like 400 who are real members because on any given Sunday, you don't have all your people there. You might have a family with five kids and three of them are sick and the parents are home with their kids that day, or at least one of the parents are. So I understand that, or people are on vacation or other things. Um, But membership implies commitment. So there's an assumption in the New Testament that there is 
a membership? For instance, how do you exercise church discipline? Uh, who, who do you exercise it on? Um, Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17, Jesus said, if your brother sins, go reprove him. If he doesn't listen, you, you, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you take it to the church. Well, who are you doing that with? Some, somebody who shows up at your church this Sunday for Easter Sunday and he, he brings his living girlfriend? Well, no, you do that with your, your members. So there's an assumption that there is some kind of defined membership. Not to mention that excommunication is taught in the New Testament in passages like 1 Corinthians 5. Well, who do you excommunicate? Again, there's an implication that there's a membership. Um, we've already mentioned this morning from Hebrews thirteen seventeen that Christians are called to submit to their leaders. Well, who do you submit to? Membership precedes a person's submission to leadership. There's an assumption. Now, you've got some Christians who are just rebels, and they don't want to submit. And that's why the Bible says you warn a factious man two, three times, and then you dismiss him. Um, You don't submit to some ecclesiastical leader who is asking you to do something that is not based on Scripture. But, you know, all things being equal, you're assuming he's a man of God and he's asking you to submit to the moral dictates that Christians don't debate over, then you you follow. Um, Shepherds, Acts 20, when Paul meets with the church at um, uh, the leaders, uh, the elders of Ephesus at that beach there on the coast, and he tells them to watch over their own hearts, guard themselves, and then to keep guard over the flock that God had given to them and trusted to them. Again, there, there's an assumption there that there's membership. Maybe a more pointed passage. Let me just turn there. I don't want to misquote it. In First Peter chapter 5, Peter speaks about elders who someday are going to be uh, rewarded. And it's a great promise. And in First Peter 5, he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, God among you. So there, there's an assumption that you, when commanded to shepherd the flock, that there's a group of people that you are responsible for. Not to mention the metaphor of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, when he describes all these different spiritual gifts and the command and the expectation in passages like 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, employ your gift in serving one another. That assumes you're not a floater. That assumes that you play a role, much like the people in Nehemiah's play, they had a place on the wall. You have a place in the local church where you use your gifts and abilities for the glory of God and serving the people of God. There's an assumption in 1 Corinthians 16 that, uh, you know, or on the first day of the week, uh, you bring your, your gifts to a particular place uh, for the collection. So membership is an assumed in the New Testament. There are many, many passages that teach it. In terms of, uh, you know, how the leaders are selected Obviously, it's very clear in the apostolic realm. Paul selected elders. Peter selected elders. Or he had a man like Titus and said, you choose elders on the island of Crete as my representative. But when you choose them, here's the qualifications. And so that should still be true today. You have leaders selecting new leaders. You may have the congregation affirming them, but it's not a popularity contest. So there's some freedom. There's some flexibility but some things that are pretty clear and plain and not a lot of room for movement. 
anyway, again, the church and ecclesiology, the, the course in ecclesiology deals with this, and that might be helpful to you at searchthescriptures.org. We're out of time for today. Uh, have a great day as you walk with Christ. May the Lord bless you. Mm-hmm.